Cause, the copyrighted program created for the Rio Grande Oil Company. Los Angeles Police calling all cars, attention all cars, broadcast 122. Be on the lookout for a black touring car, license number unknown. The right rear wheel carrying a family skidless car. Left rear wheel carrying a six-fly Jupiter with a tread slightly worn. The car is not in connection with the swing of motor off the Kramer. That's all. Rolls and Kramer. While gathering information from the police officers who worked on the case you were now to hear, an executive of the Rio Grande Oil Company took the opportunity to ask motorcycle policemen and the police car drivers for their opinion of the Rio Grande cracked gasoline, which has been used exclusively for years by the Los Angeles Police Department. With one exception, these officers praised Rio Grande and admitted that the patented cracking process certainly did give Rio Grande cracks more liveliness and crust than other gasoline. They admitted it was the fastest and most powerful gasoline they had ever used. But one hard-boiled old veteran said, Sure, you've got to find gasoline for these new high-powered police cars. Those high-compression engines need the gasoline that's all cranked up. So it'll burn in sugar. But I don't use your real brandy crack of my own car. I've only got an old Ford. And I can't afford your fine, sector-echo-treated crack gasoline. I buy the cheapest gasoline I can get. Anything is good enough for my old car. Well, that was a challenge. The Rio Grande executives couldn't ignore. So he persuaded the officer to try a tank full of Rio Grande cracked gasoline in the old Ford. And today he received a telephone call from the officer who offered this testimony. to present Chief James E. Davis of the Los Angeles Police Department. Chief Davis. Good evening, friends. Our story tonight goes back quite a few years to the days when science had not yet provided your peace officers with the high-speed criminal catching equipment of today. Had we possessed the teletype and radio when motorcycle patrolman Kramer was killed, our murderers would probably have been in custody within an hour of the time he unwisely fired his gun. This murderer committed the arch crime. He killed a police officer. Though it may take years, and though the criminal may escape to the ends of the earth, one thing is certain. He who kills a policeman will eventually be brought before the bars of justice to answer for his crime. For every other police officer in the country is sworn to avenge the murder of a brother officer. They never rest until the policeman's killer has either been placed behind prison bars or preferably executed. It is a few days before Christmas. Motorcycle officers Tom Kramer and E.J. Lanise are stationed at the corner of 23rd and Main Street in Los Angeles. When a big black steering car careens around the corner of the police car, Kramer whistles for the car to stop, but it rolls on down 23rd Street. 
Then look this over his shoulder and wait to get out Within a few minutes, the detachment of detectives under the leadership of Sergeant Joe Taylor, the present chief of detectives, arrives at the scene. The officers push their way through the silent crowd of the killed body of Officer Kramer, lying under an arc light beside his wrecked motorcycle. Officer Lanique, shaken with grief at the death of his partner, tells his story to Sergeant Taylor. You see, Sergeant, we were parked at the corner of 23rd and Main when a big black car came tearing along, nearly ran into a streetcar. Tom took out after it. And a minute later, I went after some bird in the roadster doing about 50. I didn't know anything had happened until I heard the siren on his car. Toward midnight, while police are combing the city for a suspicious black touring car, Officer Paul Stevens touches a very frightened young girl of 13 as a detective bureau. In the presence of Chief Butler, Detective Lieutenant George K. Holm, and Sergeant Taylor, he tells her story. Just a dinner time tonight, and the car drove up and passed ahead of me. Just as I passed it, a man jumped out and grabbed me. I screamed and he hit me. He said he'd kill me if I made any more noise, and I was scared, so, so I kept crying. He stuck a handkerchief under my mouth and tied my hands and feet with a leather strap. And he tied a cap around my head. And then he got in the car and started off. A little while later, I, I heard a whistle like two pacing moving. And then I heard a siren. And then I heard a popping noise like, like a power blowing out. You heard a popping noise? Yes, sir. And where did this happen? Oh, I, I was walking down Main Street. Well, the train almost shot on 23rd. Ties in. Go on with your story, please. Well, after I heard that noise, we drove faster and faster. And we left the smooth road and went over some bumpy roads. And then he stopped. And he lifted me out of the car and I laid me down on the ground. We were way out in the country and we were in the middle of a big field. And do you think you could find this field again? Oh, yes, sir. You see, after he took me there for a long time, he said he'd made a mistake and he kidnapped the wrong girl. So he said if I promised not to tell anybody about it, he'd let me go. I told him I didn't know how to find my way home, so. So he picked me up and carried me across the field to a road, and he gave me a dime and told me to walk straight ahead to the car line. I couldn't walk very well with the dust tied on my ankles, so I sat down and took him off, and then I ran as fast as I could until I got to the street car line. And then I told the conductor I'd been kidnapped, and here I am. And now I'd like to go home because my mother will be worried. Uh, yes, sir. She'll take you home in just a minute. So what streetcar line was it? Do you remember? Oh, Fred, you know, it's reality. Did he hurt you in any way? Oh, no. He, he just hit me when I screamed. But after that, he was very kind to me. Did you get a good look at this man? No, sir. It was dark and I couldn't see him very well. Well, would you recognize his voice? I don't think so. He was talking with me. He made me this for two. Hmm. He acted like he was scared. I suppose he was. Was he drunk? I don't know. 
to smell kind of funny, though. Oh, I forgot to tell you. When he was sitting the stretch on my arm, I did him. I put his finger off of her. He said, I know he did it off. You think you left the scar? Oh, I think I sent it a little anyway. You didn't notice the license number that his car, did you? No, sir. I couldn't have seen it because he had the license off when we were in the field. Uh, you said you had a basket of groceries with him? Yes, sir. What happened to it? Well, I don't have food, I guess. What was in the basket? Oh, there was a package of bacon and liver and two loaves of bread and a pound of butter. Now, can you think of anything else that happened? Anything that you haven't told us? No, sir. Please. I'm not surprised. No, I don't know now. You bet you may, Ruth. She's been a mighty brave girl, and we appreciate the help you've given us. Ruth is escorted home to her parents who were on the point of notifying the police of their daughter's disappearance when the officers delivered her to them. And next day, the officers take up Ruth's trail from the end of the University Avenue streetcar line, follow her footprints down the road, pick up the trail of a man which leads them to tire tracks beside a mound of dirt in the middle of the field. There's a handkerchief. Well, let me see it. Yep, that's the one you used to gaggle with, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Any identification mark? Longer mark, number 405. Uh-huh. Well, we'll have to check that. Hmm. Wonder what's under this mound of dirt. Looks like it's just been turned over. Here you are, George. The groceries the kid bought. Dollars. Yeah, and I've got a hunch and with the gun out there, too. You better call headquarters, Joan. Have them send out a photographer and the man who knows tire marks. Okay. Yeah, and tell them to send some more boys out to the I'm sure that this gun is around here somewhere. While Graham and Taylor wait for the men from headquarters, they begin to dig up the ground around the tire tracks with spades borrowed from a nearby rancher. But after a half hour of fast breaking work, when the photographer and the tire man arrive, they have found nothing. Carefully, the tire man examines the mark. Well, Stephen, what do you say? We're left to look at a six slide Jupiter with a tread slightly worn. Real right tire is a Stanley Kidney. Well, that's something to go on at any rate. A black curing jar with a Jupiter six ply and a Stanley Kidney on the rear wheel. And now, if we could only find that one. Late that afternoon, the officers do dig up the dirt and test the gun. And while flag the police home Los Angeles Mondays for the owner of Mondi Mark number 405, and others are on a scene look out for a black curing car with the intimidating tires, Chief Butler sends a telegram. To the Coles Arms Company, can you inform us to whom was sold the Colt 32 caliber revolver, number 164256? John L. Butler, Chief of Police, Los Angeles. John L. Butler, Chief of Police, Los Angeles. Our 32 caliber revolver, number 164256, sold to Martin Hardware Company, San Francisco. Chief of Police, San Francisco. Kindly check sale of Colt's 32 caliber revolver number 164256 and signed with the Martin Hardware Company in your city. John L. Butler, Chief of Police, Los Angeles. John L. Butler, Chief of Police, Los Angeles. Our record show Colt's revolver number 164256, here, June 20th, by one Arthur Anderson, Nadine, December 17th. Our officers are attempting to interview Mr. Anderson. Now, Mr. Anderson, we want to know about a gun you pawned last June 20th and redeemed on the 17th of December. Well, I don't know anything about pawning a gun. Where are you on the 20th of December? Right here in San Francisco. When did you last leave San Francisco? I haven't been out of town for six months. You own a gun, Mr. Anderson? Oh, I used to have one. What time? Cold, I think it was. 32? 
Maybe. I'm not sure. Where is it now? Well, I gave it to my brother. And where's your brother? Well, he's in Los Angeles the last time I heard from him. Where is Los Angeles? Well, you don't think I've ever been following my brother, do you? It's bad that it's holding information from the police, Mr. Anderson. And the boys down in Los Angeles will find him anyway. So you might as well be smart and play on the side of the law. Oh, all right. Last I heard from Walter, he was living out in New Next day, Anderson's brother, Walter, is arrested by Detective Sergeant H.H. H. Klein and Sidney Hickok and brought in for questioning. At headquarters, he faces an ominous ring of officers firing questions at him. Why did the kid have a motorcycle officer? I didn't. Well, why did the kid not that little girl? I don't know nothing about it. This is your gun, isn't it? Oh. Well, the best gun I used for getaway. I'm innocent. Well, it doesn't look that way to us, Anderson. This gun which you know belongs to your brother in San Francisco, which he said he lent to you, is a gun that killed Officer Comer. And you prove all that in court, and we'll spring you as sure as you're sitting there. But I said I'm innocent. Well, you haven't convinced us yet of that. Well, you see, it was this way. I lent a gun to a friend of mine. Oh, yeah? That sounds familiar. You don't expect us to believe that, do you? Well, all right. Let him alone, boys. Let him tell his story. Go on, Anderson. Well, when I asked my friend to give the gun back to me, he said he'd be difficult. He wouldn't tell me where. Who was his friend? I don't want to mention no names. Anyway, I'll see you. Okay, go on. Well, a few days later, my friend came up to my place and asked me to lend him 200 bucks. I told him I didn't have no dough, and that's when... Instead, he just would have to tell me about the gas. Look here, boys. I can't get through with this. I can't turn in a pile. Maybe you would rather sing for the job yourself. What's the name of this friend of yours? Uh, his name's Jim Darwin. He said he was trying to kidnap a young kid whose family got killed. That night he got drunk and grabbed the wrong kid. Boy, no, it, though. That speed cop started after him. Well, he was all balled up. He couldn't stand a pinch with his kid all hiding in the back seat. Well, that's the top of heaven. And he saw he bumped the copper off, and he sobered up in a hurry. Yeah, imagine he did. So he drove the girl out to the country and turned to loose. And where's this Jim Darwin now? I know. He ain't around L.A. with us with him. Well, who else did this Darwin know in Los Angeles? Uh, he's hanging around with a dame that runs a rooming house over on Grand Avenue. He said he was going to try to get the 200 bucks from her. What number on Grand Avenue? Jim's house, I think. What's her name? I don't know her name. She can't miss her. She's short and heavy. She can't miss her. Hey, Lynn. You and Bo better go over there and talk to this one. Yes, sir, right away. Come on, Bo. A few moments later, Detectives Taylor and Bo are interviewing the landlady at the Grand Avenue address. You are the proprietor here? Yeah. No, a man named Jim Darwin? Oh, he's wounded here. Pretty good friend of yours, isn't he? I don't know how that's any of your business. Well, it is our business. You see, we're police officers. What of it? Isn't it true that you and Jim Darwin are... Close friend? I don't have to answer your question. No, you don't. I think you better. You're looking for Jim Darwin on a murder charge. What? Yeah, he murdered a police officer while he was kidnapping a young girl. Where is he? I don't know. He lives here, doesn't he? Yeah, but he ain't here now. So that's what he wanted the two hundred dollars for. What did you say? He borrowed two hundred dollars from me. Said his mother was dying in Chicago and he had to get to her. When was this? Just before Christmas. And you lending the money? Yeah. Then you were close to him. Yeah. I loved him, I guess. What did he tell you about the murder? Nothing. I don't know nothing about it. Sure that? Positive. Has his room been rented? No, I've been keeping it for him. I thought he'd be back soon. Looks like he won't now, though. I wouldn't think so. What's in his room? Right here. Next door to yours, eh? Quite convenient. Got a key to it? Yeah. Open it up. And you've got to have a safe oh, one. If you're smart, you won't get us any trouble. You know we can get a first one in 15 minutes, so why be tough? 
Let's open up that room. All right. There's a picture of him on the door. Yes. Yeah. Did you see his handkerchief on the door? I guess so. Right here, boy. All right. These handkerchiefs all have the laundry number 405. Hmm. Same as the handkerchief he used to gag that kid with. Yes, that's three years, Miss Darwin. There's no question about it now. Jim Darwin is the man we want. Well, you'll never get him, I can tell you. He's too smart for you coppers. Nevertheless, the officers take out Garland's room for several days in the hope that he may attempt to return to see his nominee. The photograph of Garland is reproduced on circulars and sent to peace officers all over the United States. And on January 9th, the taciturn landing on Grand Avenue after repeated questioning admits that Darwin had another address in Inglewood. Taylor and Bo immediately drive out to the house. Only to find. Doesn't look as though anyone is living here, Bo. No, no coffee's on the window, no furniture in the room. Let's have a look around back. Hmm. The large door is locked. Grab that rock there. We'll open it quicker. Okay. Okay, uh, look. We'll attract some attention. She comes next door and over. Anyone looking for someone? Yeah. He lived in his house last. Oh, so why? Did he move? How long ago? Oh, sometime for Christmas. So his name was Lawrence, eh? That's what he called himself. What's he must go out? I don't know. Take a crack at that padlock with a rock, though. Hey, 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 now look here. Now, you, you can't go breaking in the door. No, we're doing it. Well, I'll call the police. Now, that's what I'll do. Oh, save it. We're the police. The police? Well, well, what seems to be the matter? A little murder case. Murder? Oh, well, yeah, there we are. Pull it off. All right. A black touring car. Yeah. You better look on the rear wheel. There's a stand of stickers on the right and a six-five cube around the left. This is a getaway car, no mistake. Uh, you say Mr. Lawrence left here for Christmas? Yeah. Where'd he go? Well, he said he had a belief. Mother was sick. Did you see him drive in here on the 17th of December? Well, uh, no, I, I don't remember date. You say he left here just before Christmas. Yeah, that's right. Well, was he driving the car the last two days before he left? Come to think of it, uh, he wasn't. I, I remember remarking to the missus that was strange. Mr. Lawrence was using the streetcar. I don't think he used his automobile after that morning he cleaned off the driveway. What's that? Well, uh, one morning early, I saw him driving into the garage, and he got out and scraped the muddy tracks from the driveway, and then washed the driveway with a hose. Funny thing, too. Looked like rain that day. Mm, covering up, though. Yeah. Could that have been the morning of the 17th of December? Oh, well, it could have been, but of course I can't be sure. I, I never was much of a handful of numbering days. <laughs> From the black murder car, police obtained fingerprints of the wanted man, and these were his picture of blood cast across the country. But months go by, and the unwavering vigilance of the Los Angeles officers goes unrewarded. Then, nearly a year later, a citizen in Pasteur calls on Lieutenant Holm at the detective bureau. Lieutenant Holm? Hmm. My name is Randolph. John Randolph. Yes, Mr. Randolph. You investigated that murder of a police officer last Christmas, didn't you? Yes, I was on that case. Well, I just returned to a business trip to Mexico. And something happened down there that I thought you'd be interested in. Yes. I was visiting a friend of mine, Don Romero, where's a big cattle ranch down in Sonora, near Hermosillo. Yeah, go on. Well, <clears throat> while I was there, 
One of the cowboys struck up an acquaintance with me, noticed the California plate on my car, and started asking me a lot of questions about Los Angeles, and particularly about the murder of that policeman. Now, it struck me funny that he was so interested in that case, and I felt it my duty to tell you about it as soon as I got back. What is the name of this fellow? Don Romero said his name was Jim Berwin. Jim Berwin? Berwin? Yes, sir. Take him that down and talk to him, will you? All right. Did this fellow give you any reason for being so interested in the coma killing? Well, <coughs> he said he knew a man who was a friend of the officer. We are, Joe. I know that's fine, thanks. Now, Mr. Randolph, did your cowboy look anything like this? Uh, yes. He always wears that a very good picture of it. Fine. Joe, pack your bag. You're leaving for Hermosillo, Mexico, to arrest a cowboy named Jim Bourbon for the murder of Tom Kramer. Thirty-six hours later, Taylor and Bell leave the railway of Hermosillo and hiring a rickety jitney begin the long bumpy trip across the rolling green range of northern Sonora. Hours later, they approach the hacienda of Don Romero. Patrol! Patrol! Mira! Don't turn the piano! Yes. Oh, dear, Senor. Where can the hacienda of Don Romero? Oh, right. Are you Don Romero? That's your service, Senor. I'm Detective Sergeant Taylor of the Los Angeles Police Department. This is Detective Sergeant Bowles. I am honored, Senor. Will you be so kind if you accept the home and compass of my agenda? Thanks, Don Romero, but we'll have to dispense it for an hour. Please, and get to the point. Oh, you may, Colonel. Always, you know. Bueno, what is the, as you say, place? We're looking for a cowboy that works for you. Name of Jim Berwin. Jim Berwin? Yeah, Berwin. Oh, thanks, Charlie. He's gone. Gone? He's gone. He talked one day with his gentleman of yours. The new amigo, Senor Randolfi. Next day, Senor Randolfi leaves to Los Angeles. The day after that, if a girl burden, he leaves too. It is hard to understand, you know, Connor. Where did he go? He did not stop to say, Senor. You see, when he left, some things of value left with months go by with no word of the murderer. And then, nearly 3,000 miles away, in the little town of Greensburg, Pennsylvania, two men meet in a saloon. I've been looking for you, Frank. Yeah, the pal. Listen, I want you to keep away from Margie. Yeah? She's my game, see? Well, I should think she'd have something to say about that. I'm telling you, but I ain't time to get mine. That's not what you told me. You lie. Oh, go on. See this. I can't be a good loser. Hey, bartender. Give me a gun. Ah. Why never regains consciousness? And police, provided by witnesses with a description of a killer who is known in Greensburg as Edward Miller, throw a drug net around Alabama County. Then, 24 hours later, a confused gentleman walks into the north side police station in Pittsburgh. Yes, sir. What is it? Well, Tom, I don't know whether I'd be after seeing things or what, but I was just walking home from work. And as I was passing under the Fort Wayne Railroad Bridge on Mudson Street, I seen a man's foot sticking out. Then I yelled him, and the foot pulled right out of sight. What? As sure as I'm born, that's what I seen. He must be between the tracks, and if he finds field over the street, there may be stuck or something. We'll investigate it right away. The man hiding in the bridge refuses to give himself up. 
and quick-witted Officer McNulty plans a harmless way of ejecting him.
on the leading airline, specify Sinclair Mood Royals because they are de-waxed and de-jellied. These orders from the country's largest oil users, as well as the demand for millions of smart motors, have made Sinclair the largest refiner of lubricants in America. That tremendous volume enables them to give you Sinclair Mood Royals in sealed cans at bargain prices for such high quality. Only 25 cents a quart for Opaline and 30 cents for pure Pennsylvania. You can get Sinclair Motor Oils wherever Rio Grande Cracked Gasoline is sold. Weapons, please call in all cars. Attention all cars. The cancellation broadcast 122. The is now in custody. That's all. Your narrator, Budget Lindsley, bidding you good night for the Rio Grande Oil Company. Listen to Calling All Cars, now also broadcast over the Western Network, KMX Hollywood. KSFO San Francisco, every Thursday evening, 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time and 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. <laughs>